Welcome to episode 135 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever discussing our passion for Linux. I'm Ryan, and with me today are the Kool-Aid drinking fanboys of Linux, Noah and Michael, as well as a special guest host this week. Zeb is on holiday, so we've invited Dalton Durst from the UB Ports team. Welcome to the show, Dalton. Thank you, Ryan. It's excellent to be here. For those who don't know, Dalton is an open source software and infrastructure enthusiast. He helped to take over the Ubuntu Touch and Unity 8 project from Canonical. He's the development manager for UB Ports and self-described fanatic of documentation. So you're that guy that creates stuff I never read. At least that's what I get accused <laughs> of. Guilty as charged. Awesome. Well, Dalton, we've been discussing the need on this show for many episodes, especially the last two, for a true Linux-based mobile OS. And we're so excited for you to be here and guest host with us so that we can get into some of the details of the work that you're doing. So before I get into what Michael and Noah's been up to this week, I want to get an update on Ubuntu Touch. So what are some of the things that the team's been working on? So we've had a bit of a a split effort for a little while here on Ubuntu Touch where we have our normal release cadence, which uh, is going to create Ubuntu Touch OTA 10. Nice. Um, where we've brought in some fixes from the community. Um, most of that release cadence has been created by the community exclusively rather than our core team of developers, for which we are incredibly thankful. That's updates to apps, a brand new redesign of the weather app, for example. Um camera improvements so cameras aren't flipped over on some devices like this one anymore and so many new things coming in ubuntu touch ota 10 that it's kind of amazing so getting ubuntu touch on a device today because a lot of people are excited about this but they you know they've maybe tried some of these other os's before and you got to root your device and type in all these special commands and and read a manual that's 900 pages long of how to get a different OS onto your phone. The Ubuntu Touch has done something quite a bit different, though. Can you explain how easy it is to get Ubuntu Touch onto your device if somebody wants to try it? So early in our development of Ubuntu Touch, we realized something. It really stinks to have to root your phone, unlock the bootloader, use ADB, use Fastboot, and all of that stuff yourself. Mm -hmm. We have to do it all the time. It's just no fun. So what we created is the UB Ports installer. This is an Electron app that runs on Windows, Mac OS, and of course, Linux. Um, and nice. you plug your phone in, in developer mode, and it does everything for you. It says, this is the device that you'll be installing on, if it's a supported device. And you can pick which release channel you want to uh, stay on, if you want to stay on stable, release candidate, released weekly, or devil, released nightly. You can pick any of those. And you can choose whether or not you want to wipe your device because it's also useful for reinstalling if you ever need to. Nice. You just click go and let it do its work. Works best on Linux. Um, As it and of should. course, there's more improvements coming to other operating systems all the time. If you're on a distro with snaps, snap install UB ports dash installer will get you there. Nice. You know, I, I think the talent in a, being able to accomplish what you guys did, because I've installed it, Michael, you've installed it. It literally is that simple. Um, I don't know of any other alternative OS, honestly, that has that. So uh, there maybe they're out there, but I'm not aware of one that makes it that easy. 
uh, this is to me speaks to the incredible talent of coders that you guys have that you were able to develop something that is basically a one click install on top of a phone that does all of that work behind the scenes that's absolutely an incredible feat and you do have to have a phone that's compatible with Ubuntu Touch though so before somebody goes and and does that go on to the uh, ubports.com site and check which phones are there new ones coming in the future there are always new ones coming we've got uh, ports in progress, and um, a lot of work is going into compatibility with phones that shipped with Android 7.1. If you want to see the phones that are compatible with Ubuntu Touch right now, you can go to devices.ubuntu-touch.io, and you'll get the whole list right there for you, along with install instructions. Perfect. Nice. And uh, I my, I like the OnePlus One. I think that's one. I also like the OnePlus One. Yeah. But- that's what I would suggest if people want to get a new phone because these are these are phone this this phone is actually really powerful even though it's fairly old it's it's still quite powerful for its its age and it's also pretty cheap if you get it because you, you got to get it used but it's a it's a pretty cheap option too. Oh yeah, yes. it can be had for cheap. I personally like to buy on Swappa, not sponsored by Swappa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's where I've been buying all of my devices lately. And on top of that, you can, I, I know a lot of the questions that I'm getting recently on a video I did on UB ports a while back on my channel is, can you connect it to a carrier still? So the answer is yes, you can connect mm-hmm. it to U.S. carriers for those in the U.S. I used Ting back in the day to get cell service, but I'm pretty sure it would be compatible as long as you have a SIM card with any of those devices you guys officially support to do so, right? Right. So the devices that we have officially support uh, are mostly GSM only. Um, so like the OnePlus One is GSM only. It means it works on AT&T or uh, T-Mobile yeah. uh, are the big networks that it works on. Verizon and Sprint are a little bit out of the picture. The Nexus 5 is supposed to work on Sprint. Verizon blacklisted all of them for some reason. Um, but there are some issues there and we haven't had enough people to test to actually find out what's going on with it. So if you're on AT&T, T-Mobile, or any of the MVNOs that yeah. sub-license those networks, you'll be good, Ting mm-hmm. included. Yeah, I've tested Ting, uh, T-Mobile, and Metro, and they all worked totally fine. So what are some of the exciting features or enhancements that will be coming to the Ubuntu Touch platform in the near future? So the big thing that we've got going on is currently the Edge channel, as everyone has started calling it. This is a release channel where we mess with all the new stuff that isn't exactly ready for daily use, but is getting there really close. And what we're doing is we are merging in the newest work from Canonical that created the last version of Unity 8 before the project was dropped. So what you see on your device that you have there, Michael, is one of the older versions uh, that was actually released by Canonical. Um, That's with the scopes that come up automatically by default, your home screen. Whereas the new Edge channel has a desktop, actually. Nice. That is so that cool. Back to. Nice. Is I that highly similar? recommend people watch the video version of Destination Linux this round if you don't normally, just so you can see what Dalton's holding up, because it's really cool to see the various phones. And there's also all kinds of screenshots. And if you want a screenshot, you can just ask us for it, basically, or if you want to know what the differences are. But what the Edge channel brings to us is... It brings us closer to that convergence buzzword goal. You gotta, nice. you gotta do that with the little shimmy. Converge, right? Convergence. Convergence with the with the, the jazz hands. Convergence. <laughs> Perfect. 
because that means that the same code base is running between desktop and phone. And that's really been our goal since the beginning of the project, because that makes maintaining everything easier and it makes the experience for both places consistent. Where on the phone, you drag out your drawer to get to all of your apps. On the nice. desktop, you either hit the super key, click the um, button, or um, push your mouse against the side of the screen to get it to come out. So um, Unity 8 right now, is that ready for desktop if I was to go install that? or not It's yet? ready for testing on your desktop. However, for daily use, it's not exactly there yet. Um, there are problems. It runs both in uh, Ubuntu 16.04 and 18.04 we're building it for, and AMD 64 only for the desktop, no i3D6 packages. But we're still working out um, a lot of the things that are specific to desktop for Unity 8. And that work is continuing along with the phone now, since both of them are the same platform. Um, we're finding fixes for one are also fixing the other in a lot of cases. Very nice. nice. So if we were to fast forward five years into the future, and you, we, what is your dream of what Ubuntu Touch is? Because I could sit here and tell you my whole dream because I see, I think, where you guys are going, but I want to hear it from you. What is your dream five years from now? What does Ubuntu Touch look like? So at its base, the reason why we continued Ubuntu Touch was because it is a user-respecting mobile operating system, mm -hmm. right? Where both Android and iOS are user-hostile in a lot of ways, where they are building in more features so that, you know, your screen dims when it's time to get off, or you can set limits for yourself that you can also override easily, but, you know, we won't talk about that part. Um, <laughs> Ubuntu Touch is designed in a way that... Um, applications are paused whenever they're not in the foreground, so they can't get any of your data. It's nice. very visible when data is being used, such as your location services. And the entire system is designed in a way we don't take a lot of data. And if the data, if we are collecting data, such as for that circle that appears on your home screen that says, you've sent this many messages today, that's all taken locally and not sent to a remote server server brilliant i mean I, I, one of the things i love about the bunch of touch is the way that it has the whole separation of all the the the, the, the security benefits of the apps that you know that these apps are kind of like in their own container confinement structure where you don't have to worry about whether this app has getting access to another app where in, on android or ios you can well android for sure you know that that is happening guaranteed <laughs> yeah and mm -hmm. it's it's really nice, and I I really like the fact that you can do like all the sort and this different stru structures of having different types of apps like the web apps and the native apps, and even with like stuff like Anbox is really awesome. And that convergence was or convergence uh, that containerization uh, confinement. There's the word was one of the base goals of the platform, making users helping users be more safe by ensuring their applications are safe, even if the applications are malicious. Yeah. And let's talk about that for a minute, because one of the things that people talk uh, really want with their phone is the apps, right? And they can't get a hold of all. Obviously, you guys haven't gone and got every single bank app and credit card app and everybody to sign on yet. Um, but you do have Anbox out there, which allows you to bring on, as I understand, Android apps into the platform itself. So if you have a specific app, that you need, you should be able to bring that over from the Android store. But how do you guys keep that 
containerized? Does that, does that have the same rules against it so that if you're opening that banking app in the background, it doesn't keep sending data or that Google app in the background? Or is that a situation where basically somebody's giving up some privacy because they're installing that Anbox? So the big thing with Anbox is it's still very much in beta. Um, and most of that hardware support you just mentioned isn't implemented yet. Okay. So the apps can't get access to your microphone. Surprise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the main thing with Anbox is ensuring that it does fit into that security model um, and fixing up a lot of the bugs that it has, such as battery usage and general instability with it. That's one of those things that we released Anbox in the hope that a lot of people would see it and come on to help work on it because it's a big feature that a lot of people have asked for. Mm-hmm. But with our team the size that it is, we are currently focusing on making our native apps and our native platform the best that it can possibly be. So Anbox in itself is not moving terribly fast, I'll give you that, but it is still there. It is meant to fit into the same confinement model of all the other apps. Yeah. And also some of the some of the apps I have worked flawlessly in Anbox. Like there are some issues in other cases, but I've had a few apps that were just flawless and it made it way easier to like there was one of the things that, that made me not be able to completely switch when I was going for like doing some testing. Um and it was it was being able to use my to do app, which was only on Android. And well, because I use a syncing app that works on Android and the right. desktop. And with Anbox, it totally worked fine, and it made it a lot easier to to use Ubuntu Touch. So it was it was great that that was an option, uh, but in most cases, uh, I was able to use the native apps anyway. And I really that I know this is completely irrelevant and not important at all, but the fact that <laughs> I can use TweetDeck on the Ubuntu Touch phone is such a huge improvement over the all the awful, absolute trash. Uh, and Twitter apps on Android, like they're all just so annoying. And yep. TweetDeck gives you everything you want in a nice, clean interface, and it's also mobile friendly because it uses the column system. And the fact right. that you can't do it on Android is so weird. But when I when I I was like, okay, what's the Twitter options? TweetDeck's here. This is fantastic. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Uh, so I assume that's a web app then. It is. It is a web app. Like TweetDeck is yeah. in itself is a web app, but the fact that it, it, it and it works so smoothly inside of a touch, I was I was I was just happy to see it because the the fact that you can't do that on Android is so weird. And I was just like, because I was like, well, well, what what options do I have? I was like the best option, fantastic. So like, <laughs> it's just I know it's not important, but it's it's just something that I like. But uh, so what kind of help uh, do you need from for the community as far as like you know? I know you would it'd be beneficial to have some people developing for like Anbox, like you said. But uh, is there anything else that you would, it would be beneficial? So basically, if you know how to do it, we probably need help with it. Anything from right development if you know c++ javascript qml if you know what any of those mean or even if you don't we have so many people who are willing to get in and help you uh, we have a boot camp room that we call it that nice. uh, the motto is there is no stupid question we are here to help you develop ubuntu touch or if you like to design if you think in terms of well what is that experience like how consistent is this we also love help with design user experience work. Of course, we always need some web dev. So if you know ExpressJS or basically anything, we can probably find a place for you. Just whatever it is, I'm always thinking in this way because development manager also comes with a bit of community manager. 
I'm always thinking in terms of, well, you have skills, we have, we got needs. Uh, <laughs> Let's put them together. There is right. almost certainly something that we can help you do for us. And where do people go if they want to help? They've heard the call. Where do you send? Where should they head to? Well, they can head to anywhere in the community links on ubports.com, whether it be our forum or Telegram or there's too many social media links for me to list. <laughs> yeah. um, you can contact me directly on Telegram if you're there at Universal Superbox. Um, and <laughs> I would right. be happy to talk to you. Nice. Every, yeah, I know. That al- that's always the reaction to the username. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to mention out there because none of the developers in open source community do mention this. So I mention it for them. Um, And it's that you can donate financially as well to help support this project. You can donate to PayPal, Bitcoin, LibrePay, LibrePay, Patreon. You can become a Patreon of the community, but I'm sure that helps with funding. Obviously, in, in a lot of ways, you guys need this a lot because if you want a phone out there to have Ubuntu Touch support, they don't have the phone and don't have the money to spend from the bank account to go buy the phone to figure out how to put it on there, then they're not going to be able to get it on there. So um, obviously buying hardware, hosting web servers, all of that requires funding. So if you have the ability to fund financially, go to ubports.com slash donate and give some donation there. And do you guys accept hardware donations by chance? It kind of depends. Uh, Most of them are just peer-to-peer kind of things because... If you saw the thumbnail today, I have too many devices. <laughs> it is a problem. Please. <laughs> yeah, please send uh, help. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we try to make it peer-to-peer where someone who wants to port to something and someone who has something to port to can get together kind of thing. Okay. Um, so if someone can publicly offer, someone can publicly take kind of thing. Nice. Gotcha. So they could go on the forums and say, hey, I have a couple of these devices I want to use and maybe someone will match up with them if they're interested in porting it. Right. And for our purposes, a lot of the times for the core team, we do have in mind what devices we're kind of looking at porting to. So it might not exactly be the one that you want, but it is the one generally that's best for Ubuntu Touch. Awesome. Such as ones with DisplayPort out over their Type-C port and things like that. So you can do external display support. Well, thanks again for jumping on and, and helping us not only uh, get up to date with the awesome work that you're doing, but while Zeb relaxes somewhere on a beach drinking some drink with an umbrella in it, you're going to co-host the rest of the show with us. So thank you for agreeing to do that. Oh, it's my pleasure. So Noah, with that being said, how has your week been, my friend? My uh, my data journey continues. So I have I, I, I actually I undid all the work I did last week as far as upgrading the drives in the FreeNAS box. And we're actually going to 10 terabyte Western Digital Reds because yeah. uh, after doing some math, those are the most cost effective, reliable drives. Unbeknownst to me and Ryan, you probably aware of, aware of this because you're the kind of guy that is aware of these kinds of things. But the drive manufacturers actually publish statistics yeah. And they keep track of how many dr- their drives fail, how many of them succeed. And what I found was Seagate has like a really bad track record in the last six years of having hard drives fails. And Western Digital Reds, if you have a Western Digital Red and you were to swap that drive out every two years, your chances of a drive failure are almost non-existent. 
And the only reported drive failures that are, that have occurred in under two years were traced back to if you dig into the, each one of those cases, they're di- they're tra- you can trace them back to some sort of power supply failure that nuked all the drives, mm-hmm. or somebody dropped something. You know, like it, it's not like the drives are running and then oops, all of a sudden they're not, and that's like a two year thing. Uh, it, it, at four years, you're you're actually pretty safe. And so I've just become obsessed with. Uh, with FreeNAS lately, and then the underlying technology ZFS obviously have become obsessed with that. And I, like I know we were joking, or I, at least I thought we were joking, the past few weeks about the whole ButterFS and ZFS thing. But like <laughs> now it's now I'm drinking the Kool Aid, and uh, and and ZF if you if you've never played with ZFS send and ZFS replication, being able to replicate your data sets over the over a network, we well, should go do that because it's <laughs> it's freaking powerful. So I think it's really interesting. You mentioned about the the hard drive failure rates. There there are several companies out there as well that publish results independently. So you can you can check those out um, to see which drives the best. The Seagates. One of the things I try to I'm trying to get across is not to be brand loyal, but be innovation loyal. So the companies that are innovating the most, or in this case with a hard drive, you're looking for reliability. But never stick with that same message because I've noticed throughout 20 years of recommending hardware to people that people will hold on to things that I've said 10 years ago and -hmm. assume it's true. For instance, if I tell you 10 years ago that Zeus makes the best motherboard, at that time that was true. But today that could change tomorrow. That's still true. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, it's not going to change. In an example is these companies do change. They do get different management. They do eventually sometimes can turn into crap companies where they weren't. Seagate's a fantastic example of that because it used to they used to make good drives and now they don't. That's where I was going, and you know, um, companies, for instance, get a uh, that have turned around will tend to be held onto for a very long time from the community and they deserve it in some cases uh, to where they've done the right thing, but people aren't taking notice because they hear people like me go out there and say, well, I remember Ryan five years ago said this one's the best, but you're absolutely correct. If you look at any of those numbers out there right now from third parties, Western digital kind of is the king. There are others up there with them on reliability, but they have consistently kept that. Um, But certainly I know, at a certain point, if Western Digital changed, then we would come on and say, stop using them. Right now, Western Digital has held on to that title for at least the last 10 years, as I recall, of mm-hmm. being one of the most reliable hard drives out there. And a lot of that has to do right. with the incredible testing that they do. But aside from even like the actual hard drives, like the 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 ability, like I don't know if you guys, if, if any of you have played with ZFS Send and ZFS Receive, but you can basically, when you go into FreeNAS and you go and create data sets, which is FreeNAS's way of organizing, well, data, I guess, is the best way to, to, to describe that. But when you create a data set, first of all, ZFS keeps, or the FreeNAS actually keeps track of each of those individual data sets as they exist in a storage pool. But then the other thing is you can send them across the network. So I actually, I actually stood up a backup FreeNAS box that I was using to kind of organize files. I have like 20 some terabytes of data. So it, it's not a trivial task when I'm like, oh, I got to move this. It's like nobody makes a 20 terabyte drive. So it's not like I can just move my data over to an external hard drive while I, you know, free up some space while I make some change. Like, no, this all has to exist on a NAS. Mm-hmm. So I had to stand up a, 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 a backup NAS and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to rsync and blah, 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 and directories and attributes and archiving function to keep track of dates. And No, ZFS send. 
and it just sends that data set right over to the other box. You don't have to touch anything. You don't have to do anything. Just wait and it's done. Uh, and then that led into this whole thing of, hey, I need to be able to be able to do this from anywhere because like right now I'm in the middle of Wisconsin. How am I supposed to access my data? And so that involved uh, setting up a whole nother infrastructure to be able to remotely access all of that data uh, using, you know, a combination of open, uh, open VPN and, and, um, and WireGuard and, and, uh, and X2Go of all things. But yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's been a, it's been a journey. Like I, I'm really excited to kind of see where this takes not only my career, but where it takes us as far as Linux and, and, and talking about Linux and the cool things that are happening. Cause when you dig into something like this, I, I envision this probably being about an eight month process ultimately resulting in probably a new free NAS with 10, with a 10 disc array, uh, 128 gigabytes of memory and, uh, and, uh, and yeah, and, and a Z2 or, or, or a ZFS RAID Z2. Uh, so I've got uh, a double parity. That's beautiful, nice. man. That sounds awesome. And the FreeNAS team has invited us IX systems to tour their facility. So I think it's a perfect time while you're hyped that we go and take advantage of that. So we're going to have to set that up. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So, Michael, what have you been up to this week? Well, actually, this this week has been a a lot of things. So, first of all, for the video f- viewers, uh, you might notice that the NAS is no longer in the background because it's actually set up now. Oh, that's magic! It disappeared. It can't be set up though, right? It is set up. It's plugged Whoa. in. I set everything up. I started doing the transition for the data. There's, it's ta- it's going to take a while to put all the data on there, but uh, it is happening. So. Uh, that's one of the things. I also, well, somewhat, kind of, not really, but sort of distro hopped recently too. And, yes. And that I'm using uh, Endeavor OS, so Archbase. And yeah. uh, I, I, I was actually kind of interesting because I was I wanted to try out the latest release from the ISO. And uh, there were a few a few issues here and there, but overall I set it up. And uh, I, I the only thing about have, being a distro hop user is setting up all the the configs that just yeah there's so many things that i want to change especially because i use plasma by the default i don't like most of the stuffs in default uh so i have to change a lot of things uh so that part i'm not looking forward to that's why i don't usually distro hop but i do uh i did sw- switch to endeavor and it is running great um so i i've been i did that i set up uh, the NAS. I am actually setting up some new uh, stuff for the, the, you know, the back end for the OBS to streamline some stuff, and uh, I'm actually going to be getting. This is not yet, but I am working on getting a monitor mount. So my uh, four monitors are now going to be like five monitors, and set up uh, like this big massive workstation for. Uh, you know, Apple has this new nine hundred ninety nine dollar monitor stand. You oh. should totally check that out. That's yeah. a good. Or that's a. You should just get four of those. Yeah, four of those. <laughs> just, just four of those. Right. Yeah. That's a that's four a fantastic suggestion. I think I will look into that. Never. Ryan um, could sell you some of his at a discount. <laughs> he sold me a MacBook. Maybe he give you his monitor stands. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good idea, Ryan. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll get in touch with you afterwards. So we can. We yeah, can, absolutely. Can. Uh, I try to make a profit on them, so I, I only sell them a little bit over the value of the nine hundred. $99 aluminum stand. I mean, that makes sense. Markup yeah. percentage. That makes sense. I'll tell you. It's like it. 1200 bucks. It's but it's it may stand. say, it, now just so you know, 
Now, just so you know, it may say Vivo on it, uh, and it may <laughs> resemble a $200 stand from Amazon, but that's not. It's actually the Apple one. It's just yeah, yeah. Ryan decorates them a little bit. So just don't don't feel like you're getting ripped off. You're definitely not. It's totally an authentic right. Apple it's stand. Like, it's like, hey, Ryan, nobody else has. why is the paint flicking off? Like, why is this? Is, is this... Well, to give you the cheese grater effect, I take a shotgun. <laughs> that's a feature, bro. That's a feature. The Vivo stand. You know? oh, okay, yeah. cool. I like. I appreciate that. That's... Yeah. So, Dalton, what have you been up to this week? I have been installing Ubuntu Mate everywhere. Nice. nice. So, I have been a happy Pop! OS and Solus Budgie user for a long time. But I got the hopper effect going. For some reason, my desktop was getting a little less stable. So, I was like, it's probably hardware. But I'll hop anyway. <laughs> uh, so Good I tried decision. Out Ubuntu, I tried out Ubuntu Mate. And the first thing I do is go into the system monitor and see, oh my gosh, it's using less than one gigabyte of memory at boot. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so you, you came from Pop! OS, you said, and how long were you on Pop! OS? So Pop! OS was on the XPS, and okay. I've been on that for, oh gee, since I got the XPS. When did I get the XPS? A year and a half ago now? Yeah. So you've been on it for a long time. Was that the one where you started having issues? It could no, have been that was on okay. my desktop, which is a custom-built... AMD Ryzen 7 1700 and AMD RX 480 system. Yeah. Team Red, bring nice. it. And so you've been on Pop! OS with that, and now you've switched to Mate. And how's the support for the AMD system in Mate? I just booted it, and yeah. everything was fine. That's what you I did have hear. some screen tearing issues, so I switched from the default compositor to the GPU one, and now everything's good. Perfect. Nice. One thing that I'm amazed with is just how fast everything feels. Yeah, like, well, that's the AMD no. part, but probably a little bit of Martin's no. coding, too. Same hardware. You click <laughs> on a window and drag it, and it's like, why does this feel so bad in other desktops? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It just feels good. And I'm not new to the GNOME 2 like, designer ecosystem. That's when I started using Linux. Right. But coming back to it, it's like, oh, wow, what have I been missing? <laughs> yeah. That's I've been crazy. actually on the opposite side of you because I've moved a lot of my computers to Pop! OS because of the Ryzen third gen integration support that they built into it. And I found myself really impressed with Pop! OS yes. and all the work that they've done. And certainly the fact that you stayed on them for that long speaks to that work, right? Um, and, and oh, I, absolutely. It is yeah. a wonderful system. I might be hopping back to it on the XPS because I think I got better battery life on it. So whatever they're doing for their uh, like Intel 8th and 9th gen enhancements right it's working real well nice and also we didn't get a chance to get it into this week's news but pop os is building a firmware gui tool basically i guess that will be able to we'll we'll talk about it in next week's segment but essentially it's taking all the work from the fwupd i think it's called yeah and they're basically putting into that into a gui in which anybody from any dis you know, Ubuntu-based distro can benefit from because they have a very, really neat firmware update system built into Pop! OS, but this will make it available to anybody who wants to use that as, as far nice. as what I was reading. So that's something we'll cover in the next episode. Very nice. So in the community feedback this week, uh, Wayne writes to us and says, uh, Hi, folks. It was, very, it was really interesting for me to listen to you all talk about the Android versus iOS and all the good, the bad, and the ugly sides of each of the OSs. 
uh, in the company. So where where even the good is questionable or non-existent in some cases, I find it very hard to take that we Linux users, with all our knowledge of what is going on in the background, continue to be iOS and Android users. Uh, I'm not sure how we can sit back and say that this is bad and that is bad and make no effort to make the change. So yep. we have to be the ones to make the change and be seen to be the adopting to the standpoint that we promote. Uh, does this come without s- sacrifice? No, of course there is some sacrifice. Surely we need to be seen to be the ones to make that sacrifice, though. Uh, my, I myself ran Ubuntu Touch for a few months, and now I use Lineage on F-Droid, with F-Droid, uh, though to have an experimental... Uh, exp- I have experimented with E, uh, the slash E slash... That's ter- still a terrible name. Uh, I have spent approximately 18 months moving away from go- my Google services and have been running Android uh, alternate... Uh, alternative mobile OSs for approximately four years. The only service where they have me over a barrel is with YouTube because I like yeah. to watch t- technical videos. And, and that's true for I mean, basically everybody. YouTube has become like so dominant, it's ridiculous. Uh, and he said, I cannot seem to find a suitable alternative to that service. Uh, but that said, I'm always happy to hear your thoughts and comments. Uh, and thanks for the show. Best wishes, Wayne. I love this email we've been trying to talk about for a while here about, you know, the the Android and iOS setup is a disaster from a privacy standpoint. Um, they're, they're both a disaster, although one is far more disastrous than the other, I think, from a privacy standpoint, security standpoint. Um, and I see most of the Linux community out there, even out in the wild at conferences and things running stock Android. I think there is sacrifices with any of these platforms that people are going to have to make. But if you look at the recent news, every single week, there is massive amounts of breaches occurring. Mm -hmm. And so the idea now that you're going to slip by and not become a part of one of these breaches from the Google App Store just took down, I think, another 86 apps and, the, and these are no longer, it used to be that a lot of these apps were kind of weird, random, silly, stupid, random yeah. apps. Now they're ones that have millions of people have downloaded them and they do major functions on your phone. They are camera apps. They are note taking apps. They are, they're huge. And they've been, they basically infect your phone right from the beginning with malware and things. So, and we keep more private things on our phone as we've talked about. I think the majority of people keep more private things on their phone than they even do their desktop computer. So I agree, Linux users, I feel should not be accepting the options that we have out there in the market. And there are people like Dalton right here who are doing things to change that uh, with Ubuntu Touch. And when you go to those platforms though, it is important to say you are going to have a sacrifice. There may be, you're not going to get the latest Pokemon Go app to work on your phone. Uh, you may Unacceptable, have, sir. <laughs> you may have to go to a website and browse to your bank versus uh, it going through the mobile browser to get to your bank versus using an app. But I think at the end of the day, these are worthwhile sacrifices that most people could probably deal with. Now, Bo, who goes to my Linux and Coffee event, here in Georgia, who does penetration testing, he carries around a flip phone instead of having any smartphone. So think about that sacrifice. Whereas you could, and what I've what uh, been telling him is you could go with something like the Ubuntu touch phone, you could still have the smartphone, but still have that security. So you'd have the ability to open a browser and not have to hit 
six three times to get to an E if you're texting somebody. You would have some advantages over <laughs> using that. But, uh, you know, there, there are that, that to me is the extreme sacrifice, right? That right. you would go to just a phone that has none of these smart features. The in the middle of the ground sacrifice is to just go with something, one of these alternatives here. And Dalton, which alternative might you recommend? Oh, I don't know. I think I might be a little biased on that one. <laughs> oh, okay. My bad. <laughs> Nice. Of course, I'd recommend Ubuntu Touch. It's exactly what you need. <laughs> exactly. Now, Michael, you kind of mentioned when the YouTube part and he asked for alternatives. There are alternatives out there like PeerTube mm-hmm. I've used. I get like a whole six views on any video I put on PeerTube. Mm-hmm. So it, it, there isn't a really good alternative out there. I feel no, like to really. YouTube, there are a bunch that are trying, but I, honestly, I can't say any of them really attract an audience, number one, for creators, or number two, that there's an audience even watching this stuff out there. The, 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 there's some, there are alternatives that are good. Uh, like, PeerTube is a great alternative, but PeerTube has an issue where, like, when it comes to federation and decentralizing, the idea is really good. But there are many issues with that concept. And when it comes to social media of any kind, it, it, it's a very complicated issue and it's very difficult to do decentralized structures. Because, for example, the reason why PeerTube has a problem is because there's no company that's backing PeerTube in the sense of like a big company. The reason why people go to YouTube and they you know post on YouTube is because it's free to do so. They're not requiring you to pay. They don't have a limit of how many how many gigs you can upload and that kind of thing. Whereas PeerTube, they're all scattered and there's there's quite a few of them, but they all have limits. You know, five gigs here, ten gigs there, but mm-hmm. n- you're still limited how many you can do, and also you're limited of how how likely people are going to find you because you are on this one instance. Maybe that instance is a part of the federation. Maybe it's not. There's really not really easy way to know in the case of PeerTube. So it just creates this thing that people just don't bother. Uh, there are other uh, alternatives like BitChute is another one. And it is and DTube, and they're very similar in the sense of like they're more of a torrent style. Um, those are options. Uh, Daily Motion even is an option, but basically there's not really yeah i mean to do a comparison so the arch linux video that i did uh recently peer tube six views youtube 8.8 thousand so when you think about like are creators going to go to a platform and start throwing content out there when you get nobody looking at it so i mean part of it is us as a community have to look for content on alternate platforms i guess and number two is Though, to your point, Michael, I'm not sure the alternatives that we have have really found the right infrastructure to promote that. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's weird because you're going to have to promote people to use PeerTube while on YouTube. And then that's just going to be like, are they going to switch? More than likely not because they're already on YouTube and they already got the content, so it's not really worth the effort. So like, there's an issue there because it's such a... YouTube is so dominant to a level yeah. of ridiculous that it, it's hard to have another alternative to it unless a company that can compete with YouTube and Google could come out like that. So if Amazon decided to make Twitch into a YouTube competitor, at that point, maybe it'd be interesting to see their alternative. Which they're kind of doing, but specializing in a slow roll, which is smart because yeah. they couldn't come out and initially, I, I think Twitch is a competitor. Mixer is also one from Microsoft 
that is gaming based, but they're also adding in the entertainment. They're adding in the, you know, arts and things like that, that people can do videos on. But those, even, even those platforms with massive amount of money backing them are doing slow rolls where they're basically focusing on niche markets first and then slowly expanding that into opening up other categories for people to post videos on. Because if you just went for YouTube directly, it's just probably not going to work. Yeah. They're even doing just streaming first and then rolling out the, like with Twitch, it was originally just streaming and then they started making it possible to do clips and they started making it possible to do like archived episodes. Now they make it possible to upload videos, but they still don't promote that part. They just talk about the streaming. So there's there's a YouTube is basically so dominant that there's really not an option and it's going to be a massive uh, undertaking to become an alternative to that. Um, but as far as like you could say kind of the same thing about Android and iOS, but at the same time, but there are things that it's easier in that sense because it's your an individual person using it for their their needs, right? Not trying to like interconnect and do discovery and all this other stuff. If I may, I think that we're looking at this almost the wrong way, where our PeerTube and DTube and BitChute, are they all meant to replace YouTube? Because where I see them fitting in more is replacing Vimeo, where you have, you are paying for someone else to host your videos in a way that is best for your users rather than best for the hosting platform in that way. Hmm. I mean, that would be great, but... You're paying Vimeo so that you don't get ads on your videos so that you get all of, you get the nice player, you get all of these things and you aren't hosting it on your own infrastructure. Hmm. I mean, that's true. I think that's an interesting perspective. I think that's worth talking about, but I don't think I've seen any of these services have a premium option. They usually just have, here's a limit and that's it. That's where I see them fitting more though, even if no one has found that yet. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And and I think somebody who's using PeerTube should look into that becoming a, because Vimeo doesn't really offer that much in comparison that you can't do with PeerTube. Uh, So I think that it's, that's a fantastic suggestion because if any of these PeerTube instances wanted to do that, I think there'd be a lot of potential there. Uh, So hopefully that some people will listen to the show and do that. Yeah. And see, that's kind of where I go with the, uh, Android killer or iOS killer thing too, where it's like, it doesn't need to be with Ubuntu touch. It doesn't need to be an Android killer. There is no way with the team size that we have, we're going to do things like augmented reality and virtual reality. And you can pay anywhere with your phone, those kinds of things that require the multi-billion dollar contracts. R and D might not be possible for the small communities, but it's okay because what we can do, we can do really well and we can plow into that niche area. Yeah, and you can create interfaces for their tools like Anbox that allows you kind of to take advantage of the same <laughs> stuff without having to write it. So that's kind of cool. Exactly. Yeah, yep. that's a good point. Um, so actually, so this is actually kind of bringing up to the, the thing we want to talk about, about um, you know, what we want to try something different for the feedback because um, we, we've been doing the email thing and we still want you to send the emails in of course but we want to try something different this week so if you were if you're interested please send us a video comment showing us uh, your tech your favorite desktop your uh, comments or suggestions are related to the this episode or any episode in general and we may feature it on a future episode so you could post it on youtube you can post it on peertube uh, you could put any, or wherever you want, and you don't have to make it public. You can unlist them if you want to, and just send us the link to that, and then we can take that video and 
put it inside of this a future episode and then have a you know an, like a direct interaction between it's kind of like how a long time ago if you've if you've ever used youtube like 10 years ago there was this feature that they destroyed and people loved it and really hate the fact that they did this but it was called video replies so you could reply to someone else's video and with your own video and it would kind of interlinked in that sense and youtube decided to kill that so this is kind of like bringing that back directly inside of an episode, and I think that has a lot of potential, and I hope that people would be willing to uh, participate in that. Uh, so, but it doesn't have to be a video. So if you if you want to do like you can do a still uh, still picture of yourself or whatever you want. It could even be like just your desktop and you want and you talking over it. Just something that you know we just want to try out something different, and also to get the ball rolling for this new segment. We're at the first 10 videos that makes it onto the show, we will send some free DL stickers and swag uh, to you. So if you would like to, you can uh, just include your uh, <laughs> you include your Don't address. Don't mind me just taking a video of how I use Linux. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So you can uh, if you if you want some swag, you can just put, include your address in your email when you send it to us with a video link, uh, and you can send those those video links and uh, information to comments at destinationlinux.org. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software languages and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for one month free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. It's really important you use that link do.co slash dl so you can let them know that Destination Linux is where you're coming from. Again, get started on DigitalOcean with $50 credit, do.co slash dl. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. Not only do they have the best cloud hosting, they also have the best stickers. That's true. We need to get some of them stickers put in our swag pack. So with us today, we have a very special guest. We have Simon Steinbeis with us, and he is coming from the XFCE 4.14 team. And we reached out to Sean Davis and asked if he would come on the show. And he said, you know what? You need to talk to Simon because he was a huge part of the XFCE 4.14 release. So Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, you're welcome. Happy to be here. So Simon is a part of the Zubuntu Council. He is a Zubuntu developer, a part of the XFCE4 panel team. You contributed heavily to the release of XFCE 4.14, as we mentioned. And despite that, according to your Ubuntu profile, it states that all this computery stuff is just a hobby to you. So it seems like with all of those roles, this has got to be a little more than a hobby, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, I, I uh, back when I wrote this uh, part of my uh, profile, um, I was still working at university because my main fields were philosophy and comparative religious studies. So that was also what I was teaching. So I was doing research, mostly sociological research uh, at university. I was also teaching courses. 
And uh, actually, three or four years ago, I made computer stuff uh, also my day job. <clears throat> so I guess that part is now a little inaccurate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, still, XFC is, uh, is my hobby. So yeah, I do that in my free time. Uh, well, we're really glad it became more than a hobby for here because XFCE has been, and from the very beginning of the show, my favorite desktop environment of all time. So I love all the work that you guys do there. So we're just going to ask you a few questions about this release. Obviously, it was four years and five months of work that went into XFC 4.14. All of us are very excited to get in here and look at all the work that you've delivered. I've been in it all week and enjoying it on Arch. But Michael, you have the first question here. So what are the differences for people to notice right away with the 4.14 from like the previous versions? Sure. Um, so... I guess that's a, that's an interesting question because ideally people would not notice the transition from GTK two to GTK three because you know that was sort of uh, right. that was just a toolkit change and ideally if you use a theme like Greybird the one that I uh, maintain then you shouldn't really see many differences because Greybird looks the same in GTK two and GTK three obviously we added some features and those you surely will notice. Um, one of the obvious things is the new uh, dialogue for managing color profiles. So if you want to, that was actually one thing that I really wanted to contribute in this cycle uh, because we didn't have any color D integration so far. And now we at least have a front end integration. So people can easily load existing profiles. They can use uh, GCM viewer to see the details, or they can also use GCM calibrate to actually calibrate their screens uh, with some extra hardware. And um, yeah. That was uh, that's definitely one of the one of the big features, one of the obvious features. Um, another one that I would mention is the support for primary uh, displays or primary monitor. Uh, nice. This is also something that people have wanted for a long time, and I, I really worked hard actually on on multiple uh, components to get that working everywhere. So I, I wrote the patch for the panel, obviously for the desktop and also for the notifications to be able to give people a way of getting all of this onto one screen uh, very quickly. And um, uh, as you'll see very soon uh, on our tour, uh, on our 4.14 tour, which hasn't been released because we're really super busy in uh, getting out all the, uh, all the releases uh, on time, uh, the tour will be out, I think, tomorrow or, or the day after, maybe. Uh, you'll see a screenshot where you can see uh, an overlay where you easily see in the display dialog which things are currently being displayed on your on your primary display. Uh, and it also gives you an option to quickly configure, uh, um, for instance, notifications being on the primary desktop, which is helpful for uh, multi-display uh, setups. Very nice. Very nice. One of the things I would say you noticed right away, and at least I noticed right away with XFC 4.14 was the wallpaper. Right, that beautiful blue, it's very blue, but it's gorgeous wallpaper with the whisker mouse, of course, front and center on it. So that is one thing. Is that a community? Was that a community contributed wallpaper? Um, well, to some extent, so I've been also contributing to uh, XFT in terms of wallpapers uh, a few releases back, but uh, uh, the last one and this one were both done by Pasi, who is also on the uh, Subuntu team. Uh, so we've had him uh, as an artwork lead for many years, and he also occasionally uh, contributed to XFC in terms of artwork, but mostly in terms of website. So to some extent, uh, it's a it's a core team job, and yeah, I'm I'm happy you like it. Um, that was also one of the things we wanted to get done last minute. You know, that was it's not the first thing when you do a new release. You think, oh, I need to do fancy wallpaper. That's the thing that we 
uh, had on our uh, priorities list uh, at the very bottom. Uh, and that was one of the things that I'm really happy that it turned out so nicely, even though yeah. it was lost. Well, it's funny because it, it makes complete sense that that would be at the bottom priority list. But I'll tell you, there are a lot of desktop environments that you go into and the wallpaper is so bad that mm -hmm. it honestly gives you a bad feeling about using it the rest of the time. And it's, it kind of just turns you off a little bit. And um, I think it is one of those important things. And you guys nailed it, I think, with the blue. It's not... Obviously, if it was green, it would be better because Dosky green. But the blue, I'm accepting right now. Correct. It's gorgeous. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. What are some of your favorite features in this release? So I would go with uh, the multi-display support. Uh, there was also something that took me a very long time to write. And uh, in fact, in 2011, I wrote a bug report uh, for that. So I wrote a bug report in 2011 about uh, being able to save display profiles and uh, of being able to, you know, have a complete setup of uh, three displays and you just connect your laptop to it and uh, it remembers, ooh, yeah, that goes here, that goes there, that goes there. Or even if you want to just rotate the screen and you want to quickly switch to that uh, profile, that there should be an easy way to do so. And after writing the bug report in 2011, I think I wrote uh, basically the specification of how it should be implemented in 2012 of the XFC wiki and then finally this cycle I thought you know it's actually not supposed to be a, re a featureful uh, cycle because we mostly wanted to get uh, the GTK3 transition done but I just wanted to get it done you know I, I use I, my laptop at work with multiple docking stations with multiple different displays you know I walk around a lot so I, I click into a new docking station I hate setting up everything from scratch every time and right. I hate having, having bash scripts or UDEF rules do that for me so and I also wanted to give people, uh, uh, you know, actually one of the one of the feedbacks or one of the comments uh, uh, on this new feature was, yeah, but you can do the same thing with an XR and R bash script, and that's true. You know, you can do everything with with bash scripts, I guess. But in this case, it was particularly important to me that it's a user friendly way and yeah. that it's accessible to people because I think that it's a feature that. Uh, is becoming more important because we're not really sitting statically in, sa in, in the same uh, setup all the time in front of one desktop that is our one sole computer. A lot of people yeah. are doing laptops as their main computer now and just using the external d d displays when they do it on a workstation. Like when they can yeah. go into, I know some people who have, like, uh, I was talking to, in my local user group, I was there was a new guy who showed up uh, the last time and he showed a, video, a photo of his setup and he had like a monstrous like six monitors display thing, and then I was like, "What is what's powering this?" And it's just a laptop that he has connected to a dock, and everything yeah. and the, all the all the monitors are connected that way. And it was because he he said you, he, he preferred to just Michael, transition. Michael, that's a conversation. But do you happen to know which dock he was using to drive six displays? Because I'd be extremely interested. Well, he told me. I don't remember. <laughs> I did Probably ask. I just don't remember. <laughs> Probably well, one of but those. But we can uh, find out is what it would. Yeah, I'll ask it. I'll ask. What was that, Dalton? It's probably one of those GPU docks. So it's all, he's just connecting to a big GPU, and then the GPU has six display outputs. Right. Because even my RX480 has five, so that's yeah. close. Yeah. So you, what you're talking about, Dalton, is the external boxes that can hold a GPU inside of them. He's yeah. connecting to one of those, and then all the, the displays likely. are connected to that. That right. makes sense. That's, yeah. that he said the laptop was like what wasn't powering the thing. It was like whatever dock GP thing he was doing, and uh, he just used the laptop when he 
uh, you know, with travels, he's using the same laptop and has his all same setup. But once he connects to the dock, he wants to have everything set up that particular way. So it's 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 very important to have that functionality. And while yeah, technically a batch script would do it, that's not a solution. Like any, yeah. that's never a solution to say, hey, just do it with a batch script. It's like yeah. if it's if it can if unless that's for someone who's like you know a technical person and you're talking to that person, that I guess that could be a solution. Is like here's a batch script. But if it requires someone to build a bash script out in order to do this, you know, something that shouldn't, that should automatically be available, that's, that's not a solution. And that's yeah. and the, and the other part is obviously, even if you have a bash script, how is your bash script going to remember the six monitors and then the two monitors that you have in your alternate setup? Yeah, exactly. And so on and so on and so on. So, um, you I have think... a thumb drive with multiple bash scripts or something. Oh yeah. That sounds right. Cool. right. <laughs> that's, that's so convenient. Right. Why did, why did I think of that? You know, I think... <laughs> yeah, but I guess that's my that's uh, probably my favorite feature. Nice. So you've talked about the things that you did get into the release that you really wanted, but were there any enhancements that you the team wanted to get into the release but just ran out of time? They have to be pushed to four point fifteen. That's always always uh, uh, a tricky question because obviously there are always things that uh, fall off the cliff but it's very hard to nail it down to one specific enhancement that we had to drop. Uh, I think that the next cycle will be a much shorter one where we focus on these enhancements and on making things a little more consistent. That's maybe one of the things that that uh, is important to me, that all the dialogues uh, uh, look very consistent. That was always the case in the past with XFC. And I think with this release, as we didn't do just a one-to-one port and some of the GTK widgets really changed also in terms of features, um, I think that we need to rethink that a little bit. Um, there's things like inline toolbars that we're sometimes using, sometimes not using, etc. This is very, very UX, uh, UX-y stuff, but I would have liked to have more time to polish that. And I think that 4.16 will be to some extent about that. Very nice. So how has the feedback been for you so far from the community? Obviously, I'm a member of the XFC community, and my feedback to you is amazing job. But how's some of the other feedback been from other members of the community? Yeah, so far, the feedback has been overly positive. So uh, the good thing is uh, that uh, 4.13 had already been out in the wild in some distributions, uh, which was also obviously something pressuring us to do uh, the stable release. Um, But there were still actually components that had been basically unshipped in any distribution. So our window manager and the session manager, which are two really crucial parts of the desktop, had not really been shipped in any major distribution. So while you could find most of what is 40.14 today in, for instance, Ubuntu, or to some extent, I guess, also Fedora uh, uh, in the past cycles, uh, you could never find the session manager. And uh, when I started to work on getting 40.14 out, I obviously took a look at the session manager and then started to realize when nobody wanted to ship it. So there was a lot of work that had to go into that. And I'm happy that it's stable so far because people don't complain about it. And that was the most important uh, uh, achievement uh, for, for just the session manager. It's something that you just want to work, you know. Actually, I did put in one or two extra features uh, in terms of making session saving uh, uh, simpler or knowing when you've saved the session because that was also... Uh, an issue for people in the past. Um, but I would say uh, the feedback has been very positive. Things have been very stable, luckily. So no big mess ups, um, I would say. There will be obviously patch releases in the coming uh, weeks and months for the components because as they 
run out into more uh, distributions. We will get more bug reports, but I'm confident that this was a very stable release all in all. Nice. It's an interesting perspective also when you said that, you know, the feedback is positive, but also not getting some types of feedback is like what you're hoping for. So, so that's yeah. pretty funny. So I'm, I'm curious what what are the one of the features that's probably it's 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 getting a lot of more attention lately in the past couple of years is the high DPI support for various DEs, mm-hmm. and uh, those of us who have high DPI monitors, it's you know it's very we're very thankful that this is becoming a thing. Uh, what were some of the difficulties in getting this to work in XFCE? So, uh, so so let me jump ahead a little bit there um, uh, because high DPI is sort of a, a, an ambiguous term um, and uh, fractional scaling is something that not everybody is familiar with. But I right. guess when they say high DPI, oftentimes they mean fractional scaling. Um, so really having everything at the same or at the correct size no matter what the size of your physical display and the so sort of taking everything into account, everything should always be at, this, at the correct size, uh, uh, to put it in a very simple way. Um, so the main uh, point of getting uh, something like fractional scaling to work is uh, having Wayland, uh, simply because X doesn't really support fractional scaling. There are some uh, sort of loopholes, which is also why we uh, introduced R&R display scaling as a hidden option uh, for those who know what they're doing uh, and who also are sort of willing to take the performance hit because R&R display scaling does have a a huge performance hit. Apart from this, sort of the only thing you can do with GTK native uh, measures and with X11 is either it's once the size or it's twice the size. Uh, That helps for some people who have high DPI setups, but obviously it doesn't help everybody. The the other thing that you can actually do is uh, tweak the DPI settings yourself uh, in the appearance dialog. That was also uh, possible in the past. Uh, But the thing that people will really want to see is fractional scaling support, proper fractional scaling support. And this is something that has only landed in GNOME Shell, like not ages ago, but sort of uh, when switching to Wayland, that was one of the first things that they wanted to do, have fractional scaling support. For us, GTK3 transition is the first step towards being able to run things on Wayland. Uh, many things will have to be rewritten for Wayland, so we'll see how soon we will actually approach that as a, as a very concrete goal. I would say at least the groundwork for that has been laid. I mean, like a follow-up question to that is very important. I think everybody is going to ask this at some point. Yeah. Will it become WFCE? Nice, nice, Michael. Nice Ooh. dad joke to throw Ooh. in there. You're welcome. <laughs> I think the, the question I have is, so we've seen fractional, I noticed in the release notes, you guys mentioned high DPI support. So you, you also yeah. just talked about the fact that there is the fractional scaling a lot of people look for. So when you say you've added in high DPI support, is that just because of the transition to GTK3, you have those possibilities, those options available there? And the next step is really to add in that scaling. Is that what that means? Yeah. Okay. So in, in theory, you know, we could have added uh, uh, the the support for just setting this option uh, of of uh, uh, sort of doubling the size of every widget, uh, uh, even in in four to twelve. But it wouldn't have made any sense because all XFC components were GTK two at the time, so they wouldn't have scaled up to twice the size. Now that they are, uh, we felt it's meaningful to add that option to the appearance uh, panel. And yeah, people can switch now and all of XFC will be sort of double the size and everything that's GTK3. If you're still using GIMP in a GTK2 version, yeah, you're out of luck. That won't, you know, that won't magically upscale. Uh, so right. 
that's something people have to keep in mind anyway. But when I say we have had some achievements uh, in high DBI land uh, with 4.14, I would say everything's GTK3. So we can use the high DBI features of GTK3 uh, for XFC. Nice. The, when it comes to desktop environments, there's no such thing as a feature complete desktop environment, right? It's always an evolving nature. You're always responding not only just to the market, but to the needs and growth of users. And as other technology becomes available, obviously, we begin to incorporate those kinds of things. What is next for XFCE? If there's somebody out there and they're 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 listening to this episode and they're going man it really sounds like they've thought of everything it really sounds like they've done everything what can they expect next yes yeah, that's also a very difficult one because you could go in multiple directions with that um i will maybe stick to some example that i've already mentioned at the beginning of this show which is the color dialogue so i've mentioned that there is um a we have front-end integration for ColorD now. Uh, and what I would expect to see in uh, either 4.16 or 4.18 is the back-end integrations. It will be a lot of work, but uh, that's something that I really want to do. So that's one random example. You know, it's it's very tricky to say. We don't have any concrete plans. We're really happy that 4.14 is out now. And it's only been uh, sort of a few days uh, for us. Uh, and we still haven't published the tour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So in that sense, um, yeah, you're probably going to give us a little more time to come up with a concrete roadmap. Um, but I would say the things that I also mentioned before is the UX tweaks, uh, making sure everything looks consistent everywhere, making sure you have uh, keyboard accelerators everywhere, all those small things that, that you simply need as a user, all those things. Uh, and some of them were actually uh, also lost originally in the GDK3 transition. We want to bring those back and, and have a very, very consistent and good user experience. I mean, one of the things that I've always appreciated about XFCE, and I hear this, and Noah, you've been playing with XFCE, and even this was your conclusion you came up with on your own, is the consistency. It's it's always going to work. You're going to get into it, and the, the settings and things that you expect are where they always were, in, in a way, at least in my four years of being in Linux. They always, if you want to change the clock from 24 to 12, you right-click on the clock, it's right there, you change it. it. Everything is very consistent. It's reliable. You know what you're going to get when you install an XFCE desktop environment. So for me, the release cycles or taking the time to work out the bugs and creating that consistency in between cycles is one of the advantages of XFCE. It's one of the things I love about XFCE. Yeah, I guess actually many people in the developer community feel the same way. Like we don't have the feeling that we need to sort of radically change uh, a lot of things uh, around XFC, but yep. it, it's it's really just you know uh, yeah getting making sure that everything is really really consistent and yeah I guess you know there's always things you can improve. So I'm I'm sure we can uh, improve a lot of things for Photo 16. Yeah, there's awesome. uh, there's polishing things that, that I would like to see that just makes things more you know user friendly kind of thing. But like when you're you're already working on that with like the display stuff and the primary display was one of the things that I preferred and I like the fact that the latest version has a a release where like when you open a new application it 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 opens wherever your mouse is located and uh, mm -hmm. so like if whatever monitor you're on is the one it, it activates for. And that is something I was wanting for a while. So it's really great to see that that, that's, that came. Uh, and there's, there's, I think there's a lot of great stuff that XFCE does in the sense of, um, you know, being just the, the consistency thing is really important because when you, when you load up XFCE, you know that the things that you set are going to 
be that that's where everything's going to be whereas other DEs frequently will change things randomly for no apparent reason and that's not a good idea so i'm i'm very much a, a fan of the fact that xfce is like when they change when you change something it's a gradual change that doesn't like jump in your face of like oh hey where where is the thing i was looking for well it's some random place here now so like i'm i'm yeah. i really think that xfce is, is one of the big solid points for it is that it is very consistent and reliable yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah. as I said before, I, I think that that's a, a mentality thing that uh, people in the developer community share. Like, we, re- we very rarely have people uh, that are really part of the community that come up with crazy ideas and say, let's sort of reorder everything. And uh, right. it, Usually people are very happy uh, with the consistency and also that's an advantage of uh, being slow in terms of changing. Uh, that you have this consistency to some extent uh, automatically, but I also think uh, and and agree. I think uh, uh, I, I'm not sure who of you said that exactly, but that you find things in in very intuitive places. Um, yep. That's something that I also want to continue working on. You talked about how I mean, you probably can't answer this question. I know that, but because it's so so recent. But earlier you mentioned how you're trying to focus on getting a shorter release cycle for the next release. Do you know mm-hmm. like how how much like how long you think that that this particular next release will be structured at? Is it is there anything that you could say about whether like how short do you mean in comparison? Actually, and that's something that maybe not uh, everybody who's using XFC really knows, is that we do have an official release model, and that official release model says that we release every year. Um, and I would like to try to stick to that release model again uh, to some extent, just cut down the blueprints uh, to something that is manageable. The problem with uh, why 4.12 and 4.14 took so long was actually, uh, yeah, manifold, uh, or there were actually really many factors in Play. One of them was uh, a few of our co-developers left uh, for private reasons, uh, just you know, real life that happens sometimes. Uh, and so we, so we had big holes to fill and big shoes to fill uh, in terms of picking up development again. Luckily, now we're in a much better place. Um, but that was, and, and also that's the other point, you know, saying now we have a feature-less cycle and we just port things from GTK2 to GTK3 doesn't really attract many uh, new developers, you know. <laughs> So that didn't really help. I'm happy that this is done now, that we can focus on, you know, maybe cleaning up further deprecations. But other than this, you know, push in some tweaks here and there and and attract more people and make it a shorter release cycle to show that we're alive. Nice. All right. So, Simon, I hear everything you're saying, and I want XFC 4.14 now. (laughs) How do I get it? Um, there are some rolling release distributions, uh, and I guess Arch Linux is a, is a good yeah. uh, go-to place for that. Um, other than this, you can wait for the next Ubuntu release, which is due in October, so that's not too long uh, away or not too far away. The next Fedora release will have it, um, and if you want to just try it, play with it, uh, we do have an official Docker container that is called XFC Test that we also use for uh, uh, testing XFC, and we're actually working on this to, to make it even easier to use, uh, So uh, and also to add some uh, official documentation to it. But you can simply download a fully featured uh, uh, Docker container from Docker Hub that is called XFC Test, with 4.14 inside, bring it up. Uh, you get a you get uh, basically a Cepheus screen uh, inside of your uh, running desktop. You can play around with the components. Uh, you can look if the translations are fine if you're a translator. Uh, so this is something that we've also been working uh, on uh, during this cycle to make it more accessible uh, in terms of testing and make it easier. Yeah. 
Nice. Okay, that sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So every desktop environment and project could use some help from the community. Where are some areas that XFCE needs the most help right now? I would say we surely need more coders or more people who can uh, write good C code and who also sort of uh, uh, yeah, like the XFC mentality of uh, keeping things in the same place or feeling that some things are already in the same place and we don't need to change them for the sake of change. Um, so developers is certainly one thing that we need. Um, artists, I would also say I started as a, a UX designer uh, when I joined XFC. Um, and I haven't been able to do much of that uh, lately because I've been writing so much code. Um, so I would definitely say that would help. Um, we luckily have a lot of translators, but we don't have that many testers. And that would also be something uh, really uh, worthwhile to have a really stable testing community that says, okay, there's a new development release out. We take it for a spin. We know uh, what we're doing. We're writing automated GUI tests. It's also something that the Docker container facilitates. Uh, uh, via via uh, Python uh, behave uh, framework. So yeah, those are the things that I, I think we need most. Also Thanks. in terms of priority, uh, probably developers uh, uh, and then testing UX. I don't know. It's difficult. Sure. Well, hopefully we can send some your way as they hear this interview. We really want to thank you and the entire XFCE development community uh, for all the incredible work and dedication that you guys do for XFCE. I think it looks absolutely incredible. I've been using it all week. It made me instantly feel at home. Sometimes I'll go because, you know, being part of this podcast, you got to check out everything and I'll leave XFCE for a while. But it was the first desktop environment I fell in love with four years ago. It's still the desktop environment that's my favorite today. You guys should be really proud of all the work that you're doing. And I look forward to seeing what you guys come up with next. Thanks for coming on the show, Simon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So this week, KDE released their uh, big set of big releases for all their applications of 19.08. And the goal of this release was to bring more features and better designed software that increases the usability and stability of various apps like Dolphin, Console, Kate, Ocular, Gwynview, and many others. Uh, so some of the standout features include uh, Dolphin. Dolphin has improvements to, their, uh, to minimize clutter and improve the information panel in section. Uh, this is really good because the information panel has like, uh, it has, it, it seems like it, it doesn't have a lot of content and this latest release is actually making it much more information. So you get a lot more, a lot more about your various different uh, files for images and stuff. Uh, it also allows you to play media, for example, right from the main panel. Uh, I love that. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, Gwen, the Gwynview Image Viewer improves the thumbnail viewing, which is really nice because it has like a low, re, a low, a small thumbnail, low resource approach, so that it loads these thumbnails much faster, which is very cool. And it also adds a new share menu. Um, Ocular received improvements for EPUB support, so you can do ebook reading inside of Ocular, uh, and it will also no longer crash with malformed EPUB files. Uh, and it has improvements to the high DPI support. Uh, yeah. Console gets a boost in tiling features, which is really nice because Console already had the ability to do tiling of different uh, terminals, but it not well, not not well, no. Uh, but the latest version is really nice, especially the way of reorganizing things. It used to be you have to like you'd have to prepare how you want the tiling before you do right. it. 
and now you just set up the tiling. Okay, I want to move this one tiling. So you just drag and drop, move it wherever you want, and it shows you like a preview of where it will go, and that is fantastic. Uh, Also, uh, Caden Live gets some new keyboard and mouse combination shortcuts that increase the productivity. So you can do uh, change the speed of a clip. Uh, The three-point editing operations are now more consistent with other other video editors, which is really, really nice. So people who are transitioning from one editor to the other to Caden Live will have that, you know, that transition much better. Uh, So overall, there's like a lot of different stuff in this this release with all these different types of applications. Because basically what happens is when KDE apps release a thing, they basically all have a main goal of like, we're going to release on this day and everybody's involved. And most of the time, everybody is involved in the various different applications. And this is great because there's a lot of bug fixes and user improvements overall. And there's actually quite a few like this, this, this uh, particular release they are now up to like 35 different flat hubs or flat packs and stuff. And they're now, they also have support for snaps and app images and everything. So this is, if you are a KDE user or you like some of their applications, uh, definitely check out the latest releases for whatever application that might be. So I made a mistake once and there is a package that is out there that allows you to get all of the KDE applications in one um, install package. Little meta package, yeah. Little, yeah, I thought that was exciting thing. and I installed it and then my menu blew up with 1,900 billion applications. That, that might E-Rate. be a slight exaggeration. Okay, 1,100 billion. No, I'm that's pretty sure more, that's it. No, 1,100 <laughs> million. You put it... Okay, just, million. Oh, million. Slight, okay. slight, yeah, it's a couple factors issue. But, but so. I bring that up only to say it's amazing how much that team has created, how many applications and things out there. It's also amazing their use of K with almost all of them, and I wish they would stop. But outside of that... <laughs> they have sort of stopped. Uh, and, and like new applications don't do that that much. Like There's a new uh, disk usage thing called file light there's no k in that whatsoever thank you yep. I may, maybe they've heard the feedback <laughs> but yeah there's there's uh there's quite a few applications that kde makes that are actually fantastic there's a, a lot of fantastic tools that kde makes and it's definitely worth checking out and also they updated their uh their application website so not only are you able to look at like they they've, they gave some categorizations and you know they've reorganized the sorting and the searching and they've improved that, but they've also added add-ons. So not only just the applications that KDE makes, the things and plugins and stuff that KDE makes, like uh, Latte Doc, is technically not an app, but it is a very awesome feature. It's now available on their website as you know to find the different add-ons and stuff like that. So it's definitely worth checking out the latest updates for the KDE Time, applications. Time, fanboy, you're done. No and more talking. the KDE applications for the add-ons and stuff. So it's, you should go check those out. And I agree. Let's let's move on. If you're looking for a fully open source tablet, including not only the software but the hardware, you got to check out the new Cutie Pie. This tablet features a foldable handle that doubles as its stand and an 8 inch 1280 by 800 IPS LCD panel, a 4,800 milliamp hour battery. That would be amazing. A really big battery. <laughs> a car battery attached to your tablet. It's a 4.8 amp hour battery, yeah. a USB A port, a micro SD card reader, and six, count them, six GPIO pins. Tablet's expected to release sometime around the end of 2019, so hopefully it'll be just in time for Christmas for yeah. that Raspberry Pi fanboy in your family. They're using the Raspberry Pi 3 compute module, which is in a DDR3 form factor, 
which helps improve the weight of the device and keep the entire thing slimmer. And the video of the developer edition that they have up, we'll have that in the show notes, shows them pinching and zooming as well as scrolling and the ease of the interface with a really nice on-screen keyboard. And now, I was debating this with a few people, what that on-screen keyboard looked like. And we think it's a Q virtual keyboard. So Interesting. Nice. We're pretty sure that's the one. About the device, they say, whether you're opening an app, SSHing to a remote server, or displaying a dashboard, QtPie's touch-friendly interface can help you with everything. Connecting a keyboard or a mouse is no longer mandatory. So you can go check it out at the link that we have in the show notes and sign up for updates on their main page because this one might get a little fun. So we get asked this question consistently in the email, and there's really no good answer. Um, we get asked, what is a good Linux tablet, right, to yeah. run Linux on? So the actual hardware is what they're looking for here. And, you know, there's Microsoft Go out there, which is one of the later ones that people talk about. There's the Microsoft Surface Pro 1 and 2. There's a bunch of Microsoft Linux. tablets. Pretty, it pretty much is. Um, and there's a couple tablets um, that, of course, in the used market that you could pick up and run things like uh, Ubuntu Touch on, for instance. In fact, you were showing us, Dalton, a uh, Ubuntu Touch on the Nexus tablet, correct? This is the Nexus 7 2013 only. If you have the 2012 with the textured back, that's not the one. And is there any other tablets that UbiPort supports currently? Well, uh, there's the BQ M10 HD and FHD. Those devices shipped with Ubuntu Touch originally. Uh, so if you can find any of those, you can install Ubuntu Touch on them. Upcoming, though. Yeah. Bring that around the microphone. We have the Pine tab. Ignore the Windows logo. Uh, <laughs> so that is a developer's kind of kit, right? Yes, this is a developer kit from Pine64, which we extremely appreciate, of the Pine tab. So it's got the keyboard case that comes with it and the docking connector. This guy has an all-winner A64 in it, which is the same as the Pine book and the Pine phone. So So the only problem I see with Cutie Pie is they need to put Ubuntu Touch on it. But hardware-wise, this looks pretty slick. This is pretty cool. This is kind of what I would expect the specs to be on the Pine tablet that they uh, are rumored to be working on out there somewhere around this range of a tablet and when you think about the functionality of tablet and i think i've darn near owned every single one ever made i get them i'm super excited about it and then it sits in a corner usually collecting dust because i'd rather do my work on a laptop or a desktop anyways uh for most of the time where i really find value in them is when i'm traveling and i have to bring a work computer but i want something that has you know, Linux on it that I can easily slip in the bag and not have to pull two whole laptops out in the middle for TSA to, um, you know, scrutinize. So to me, that throwing a tablet or something small like in the tablet form factor in along with my work laptop is usually the way I go. And this would be something I could see easily being able to throw into your bag, connecting a keyboard to and being able to do my get my Linux on even while I'm out and about. It's certainly small enough and portable enough, and it appears that the case that they have the pictures of here is 3D printed, so Hmm. build your own. There you go. (laughs) That'd be interesting. A little DIY kit? Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. They should totally do that. We'll we'll send them an email about that. (laughs) According to China.org, Huawei is looking to create China's first open source foundation now the organization is has plans to bring in technology partners from all around 
uh, and the foundation is launching next month. Now, this is an interesting move by Huawei, given the timing mm-hmm. of uh, their recent snafu with, uh, you know, the United States government and this, that, and the other. But larger, I think it 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 speaks to a a growing trend of all of these individual. We'll just call them what they are: competitors to Apple that have been trying to establish themselves in the mobile sphere. And in this case, uh, you know, Samsung has been redeveloping all of their apps and trying to uh, create an alternative to Android. And, and um, obviously Google themselves are trying to distance themselves from, from, from Android specifically and, and create their own thing again from scratch. So it kind of makes sense that Huawei would do the same thing. And what better way to do that than with an open source foundation. So this, uh, so based on interference from other countries, Huawei is looking to, uh, to make its own foundation that will help push open source and not be tied to a single company that can be interfered with, with government, China and Iran based companies or other countries caught up uh, in sanctions or influence will likely join. It's going to be interesting how independent this can be given the countries that it's founding in, right? If we were taking a look at this article and it was a Swiss-based company, uh, you know, uh, look at the, well, uh, all I'll say is look at a certain mail provider that exists inside of Switzerland and the kind of traction that they have gotten and the kind of respect that they have garnered from the open source and Linux community. I, I think that one of the things that, that Huawei is going to struggle with is the fact that this whole dilemma that they're in uh, originally stems up from the very fact that people don't trust countries like China. Uh, People don't trust countries like Iran. People don't trust countries like, you know, North Korea will throw them in there. Um, And so it's going to be very difficult for them to, I think, to get a successful product or a successful organization off the ground. That said, if we were talking about proprietary software, proprietary organizations, it would be a much more difficult sell. The interesting thing about open source is it really doesn't matter what country this is starting in. It really doesn't matter what the government wants to do. If the source code is available online and people can go through and audit it and decide for themselves what is secure, what isn't secure, uh, it, 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 it's why a lot of us are on Telegram, even though Telegram is an invention of Russia, right? Uh, I, I think that we have there's a there's a there's a very uh, high potential for something like this to succeed. If you think about it, this could be Huawei opening an open source foundation specifically to target mobile operating systems and 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 the mobile ecosystem. That is in a lot of ways, I think, what all of us were kind of hoping Android was going to be. Google, a large company, dumping some a lot of money into a project or into an idea that could compete with other mobile operating systems. But this one, this one is going to be open source. This one is going to be based on Linux. This one is going to be the operating system that the community uses. And I think if you look around any Linux conference or any Linux meet uh, meetup, you'll find that the vast majority of people are in fact using Android. So, so to a certain extent, they were successful. The problem was, or is, I guess, rather, Google screwed it up because they don't value privacy. And so what we need now is either an organization that values privacy or it needs to just be handed out into the open and backed by a massive company like Huawei that can say, hey, we'll build the devices, we'll put them out there. If you don't believe it's secure, go check out our source code and, 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 and verify for yourself. I think this has a potential to succeed. What do you guys think? I think it's actually very interesting because they're also saying that it's not going to be like this is a foundation that's not specifically just for like Huawei. It's going to be like a multi-company thing. So, uh, because of that, it, even more interesting. Uh, but I agree completely. As, as it's it's interesting because if if Huawei wasn't doing these things, it would basically like 
I'm not going to care at all. But the fact that they're open sourcing their OS, they're open, they're creating an open source foundation, and they are embracing this, it's very interesting because it also kind of means that people are going to uh, be more willing to consider their stuff anyway. Like I would have never considered them in general because of the whole proprietary. Like I don't want another proprietary thing. Um, so it didn't really matter who, where they're from or who was doing it. I don't care about a, yet another proprietary system. Uh, but the fact that they're actually open sourcing everything, there's a lot of potential that I think if Huawei weren't doing this, I wouldn't care. But the fact that they are, I'm, I'm pretty interested to see what they do with this because I think there's a lot of potential there. Well, the one thing I'll say is that it, it was mentioned in the article about the fact that the Software Foundation idea came up after the GitHub uh, the world's largest host of source code currently was prevented users in Iran and other nations that were sanctioned by the U.S. government from accessing portions of their surface. So what they're yeah. doing is they're basically creating their own foundation now that wouldn't have that potential to have a company like any company. It doesn't matter if it was Microsoft owned GitHub or any company out there. Obviously, if you do business with the U.S. government and they tell you to stop, you're probably going to have a heavy influence to stop or therefore lose your most of your business uh, or any of your interest in the U.S. So they're trying to create something independent of that. My only fear and the only reason I would still hesitate here is if they create some, obviously the whole idea of this is to create a foundation, but if Huawei releases that can work on multiple things, software or hardware, if Huawei releases an open source hardware spec sheet and an open source software spec sheet, if they were to bring a phone in, I would be 100% on board. I would still be hesitant with them releasing a hardware, you're utilizing a hardware and software solution from Huawei, or really I'm hesitant with it with any company. And so that to me would be the ultimate, this company truly is out there to focus on entirely open source community and push that agenda forward if they were to do an open source hardware build along with that goes with the software. Because just because their OS has open source in it doesn't mean there's not microchips sitting inside the hardware. I'm not saying they would do that, but that's the possibility we're all would be afraid of. So uh, having both of those would be the perfect combination. But to get to that point, you have to have a foundation. You have to have a bunch of companies willing to join it. It will be interesting to see what they accomplish. Dalton, you have a lot of experience in the phone world. What are your thoughts on this? So the big question here of whether it's good for the open source ecosystem or not is whether or not you have the freedom to install your own software on their hardware, right? Because it doesn't matter if you can build all of their software for a phone if you can't then take your build of the software and put it on the phone. Interesting. So I think that's kind of where even if it's all open source, it doesn't matter if you can't install your own builds, right? Because they can still slip something in their build system or whatever it may be. And that goes for any company who's doing any of this stuff. Being able to not only verify the source, but verify that the source or the binary on the phone is the same or at least similar to what you can build uh, is kind of the big risk aversion there. Yeah, if they have the source code, that's a good point. If they have the source code available and, and you can use it uh, in general, but you can't, it, and if you try to take that, the one you built and put it on the phone and it doesn't work, that that's a, and it, and it's its own complication there. So they, there's potential for that to be like, they have proprietary blobs that they didn't tell you about. Like that could be an issue. Uh, that's a very interesting point. Uh, do you? Yeah. And the question is whether they go for the secure route or the more freeform route of, are they going to verify the entire boot chain? Are you going to be unable to touch that at all? Or can you, as it is on Android, unlock the bootloader and install your own stuff yeah. on some phones? Right. Yeah. On some phones. And what's actually kind of 
interesting because uh, Huawei used to have unlocked bootloaders, like by default. Yeah. Like they used to just have them by default, and then they decided to lock them down and arbitrarily lock them down just because they felt like it. And uh, their reasoning was like, because no one uses it. Like, how do you know? Like, that they unlocked the bootloader to change it. How do you know? And uh, it, it was just kind of weird. But now they're kind of like doing a complete pivot from that that initial thing because they were kind of, they were kind of put put in a position that's that's it's interesting to, to see what happens because of the whole the sanction stuff with GitHub and the I guess sanction stuff also against Huawei when the all the companies were having to take it out and the solution that was touted as like the best solution that could be done is the open source because it doesn't matter what the governments tell them to do like or what companies or whatever as long as the stuff is open there's the license like supersedes any kind of sanctions because it, it gives you the freedom to do whatever so the, the fact that they have actually like uh, seemingly are embracing that is pretty interesting so up next in the news we have some uh Guess it, I guess it's sad news. It really wasn't for me because I feel like I've gotten everything I was going to get out of this game. Uh, me and Dustin from the Ubuntu Budgie team played this game for a good month. Uh, the game is Rust, and they are basically removing their Linux support in here. Now, during that month where me and Dustin basically went out there, foraged in the survival game, built all these bases, built all of our equipment up, and then one day, randomly, hackers came in and destroyed the entire server was the experience that I ended my love for Rust, basically, at that point, And we never played it again since. But this is a popular game out there uh, that a lot of people, it used to be, a lot of people played from Facebunch Studios. And they did have early Linux support in there. This is one of the games that, admittedly, even I would say, hey, we have Rust on Linux before we got Steam Proton and things. So it was one of the games that we were excited to have on Linux. Normally, I would be taking this moment to beat up on Face Punch Studios pretty bad on this because why are you leaving Linux, man? Linux is the future. But they're doing it in such a nice way that I can't. They're actually, even though they're going to stop support for Rust... They're actually doing a special system with Valve to refund everyone on the Linux platform that purchased Rust if you've at least run it in Linux once. So even if you're currently playing it on Windows and you have in the past run it on Linux, they're going to allow that refund system uh, to refund you your total money for the game. And I thought, well, that's pretty nice. But then they went even one step further in their article and said, hey, use the money we're refunding you to go buy a game that has native Linux support out there, which you know, was a pretty nice thing to say as a developer. I feel like they've handled this whole thing pretty well. So come wow. September, you'll be able to go refund your money from Rust, and it doesn't matter how long you've played, how many hours you've put into it, you can still get a refund as long as you've played it in Linux once. So what if you've never played it at all, but you, you know, not, you know, just in no time whatsoever? They suggest that you at least run it once because Valve's record keeping apparently isn't always great. And if you've not played it recently, you may want to go ahead and just boot it up uh, for a moment in Linux just because that will give Valve will have the latest records that you've at least run it in Linux before. Yeah. Because um, they said part of the problem they're running up to is Valve's record keeping on that, which I'm kind of glad they're not keeping records forever and ever on that information anyway. Yeah, so it, this isn't great news. We're losing Rust, but I feel like you couldn't leave Linux in a better way than Facebunch Studios is, and I hope they'll reconsider 
and come back was, with another game. I mean, that's very interesting. And the the reason they gave the last time because I don't the previous thing like last week or whatever they said that they were going to be stopping using uh, support for Linux in compare in like in being compatible with the Windows version, and their reason for that was anti cheat. Yeah. So like. And it, and it makes sense that the anti-cheat is a huge issue because that's one of the reasons a lot of com- games are not even on Linux is the anti-cheat. That's why I stopped playing it because of the cheating, right? Yeah, and and exactly like the break, like breaking into the system and stuff. So it, and it also there was people they were they, they even made a, a, a report that said that people were breaking into Windows servers, not servers, but Windows people who were playing on the Windows version with the Linux version because they didn't have the anti-cheat in it, and it's. It, it it's unfortunate and it kind of makes sense and I do think I agree and I definitely agree that the the way they're doing it is like the least annoying possible way of doing it you know? yeah it is sad that we're kind of in that the few ruin it for the many situation where it's just a few cheaters that's kind of mm-hmm. pushing everything over for them but they've had trouble with their Linux builds for a while and unity hasn't been kind to them so it makes sense yeah yeah and I, I, I've I've never actually played it. I did buy it a long time ago, and I never played it. Um, well, go boot it up so you can get your money back, but, and then you can go buy uh, this next game that Dalton's going to talk right, about. That's a fantastic suggestion. So, yeah, if you are bummed out about Rust and need your survival game fix now, you can check out the game Stranded Deep. This game describes itself as you take the role of a plane crash survivor stranded somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Ooh. Come face-to-face with some of the most life-threatening scenarios that will result in a different experience each time you play. Scavenge. Discover. Survive. Or nice. maybe not. Or don't. <laughs> game over. Or, or maybe not survive at all. So this is a single-player game, and it's made to play on Linux. And while it's in early access, they've already received some major updates recently, including a long list of bug fixes, new characters, and UI improvements, difficult difficulty settings and giving you some more skills to learn so you can survive or not even better. (laughs) And they've added a load of new animals to encounter as you try vainly to survive. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So this game, I I have a feeling when I was looking at this, that this would be a game that Noah would like, because we're still trying to get Noah fully into the gaming thing. And I feel like a survival game is kind of up his alley here. I uh, listen, I'll, I'll one V one you any day, bro. (laughs) <laughs> no scope you. 360 no scope. You no scope in this game. Get the terminology down. Yeah, so 360 no scope. 360 no scope. Here's you don't know where that. You, let me t- let me tell you where that comes. You know where that comes from. This predates Destination Linux, but it was the last year. Into gaming. Yeah, actually, you're not wrong. And I and I asked. I said, so how, how do you get into gaming? They said the first thing you have to know is trash talking. Like that's before you do anything else. Doesn't matter how well you play, how bad you play. The first thing you have to understand is trash talking. So well, give me a list. So they gave me a list, and I wrote them all down, and I've saved them in trashtalk.txt, which is a file that I have. And that's I just amazing. It up and read off of it. I love it. That is good advice. Well, if you're looking to play this survival game, it'll cost you $14.99. And so that would be a perfect use of your refunded Rust money out there. All right. This week in the software spotlight, I'm bringing back UKUU. So UKUU is a very powerful tool that will let you test the latest kernel on any Ubuntu-based distro out there. Now, TG Tech provides it for free, but there is a version with a smooth interface that is $12. Um, I would say it's worth every penny from the screenshots that I, I have seen of it, but I paid my $12, and you're supposed to get the application in like 
six hours or something afterwards, he says, but I still haven't gotten mine. But that's okay because the regular one without the fancy interface does everything I need it to do anyways. In UK, you use just worth it based on its own. But I do hope he fixes that system where he's sending the app out to those who do pay. Um, and it gives you a lifetime license if you do spend the $12. But just the work that TG Tech does out there, it's worth paying for any of these apps to try to support more of the work that they're doing because mm-hmm. he does Aptic, Group, Polo, Sling, Timeshift, Umix OS, Conky Manager, Battery Monitor, Disband. All of that is from this developer. So any chance you can get to give him money, whether you get something out of it or not, is worth every penny in my opinion. Yeah, and I think the I think it's it's an interesting topic because of like the fact that he uh, does the you know pay, it's a pay for commercial structure of open source software. And I think that a lot of these are great tools. And I kind of hope that he changes his uh, pro his like bio on Twitter or something. So he uh, so instead of like you know I'm a developer or whatever, he'll just it'll just say I make Groot, and that's it. Nice. That's well done. Mike. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Our tip and trick this week comes from Brian. He writes in and offers this suggestion. Over the years. I have amassed quite the collection of bash scripts. I've written most of them myself. And although none of them are very complex, most are only a line or two using them. Saves me a great deal of time for many years. I've kept them in my documents folder in a subfolder called scripts and had to enter the full path to run them. A while back, I decided to research the best place to store my scripts and where Linux would automatically find them when I simply run the script by name. Now I store them in slash user slash local slash bin which is the binary folder for individual users and sync that folder across all of my personal machines using sync thing. It's not that big of a deal. I know it won't be a major game changer for most people. However, I made that discovery and followed through and I improved my daily workflow significantly. So I thought it'd be nice to share this with the community. Please keep up the good work as I absolutely love the show. Brian from London, Ontario, that would be in Canada. P.S. I previously worked in broadcast and radio and have dabbled in podcasting. I now have a home studio and do some voiceover work on the side. If you ever need a guest host, please let me know. I'd be happy to take Michael's spot. <laughs> so wait. Oh, I, I'm sorry. That, that Michael's spot thing was not, wasn't in there. I apologize. Well, that's the most logical person. A, you know, it's a great suggestion. You're telling- yeah, it's a great suggestion. It really is because I think, I think the user slash uh, user slash local slash bin is an underused folder to begin with. I think people actually placing binaries in the either user bin or just root bin wherever root uh, binary folder, any either of those places, I think they're underutilized. And I also think that the vast majority of us, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about on my show two weeks ago. I opened the show by asking how many people have downloaded a file and then deleted the file and then gone back and downloaded the exact same file again like a week later. And mm. how many people knew that they were going to delete that, they were going to re-download that file at the time that they deleted it, right? Oftentimes, and I'm guilty of this, I need a backup script for for rsync. Hey, Google, rsync backup script. Somebody has it there. I grab it, I throw it in production, whatever. Why not keep that script available? So the idea of having an actual bash script folder is fantastic. The idea of keeping that on your local machine so you have access to those scripts all the time, even better. The idea that you put those in in an executable directory so that you can just call the script by typing the name rather than actually have to specify the path, even better yet. Let me offer one more tip. Let's just say for the sake of argument, for the sake of, uh, of discussion, that there was somebody out there that said, I really have a preference of storing my scripts in slash home, slash username, slash other files, slash things I need, slash system files, slash scripts. 
you could yeah. actually add that directory structure, that big long directory structure, into your Bash profile, uh, and you would ha or into the uh, environment variables, and then you would have the ability to run those scripts from that directory as well. So there's a couple different ways to to attack that problem. By far, Brian's is the best suggestion. I love it. Great tip and trick. Yeah, love it. Thank you, Brian, for sending us that email. And we will keep you in mind as a guest host in future episodes. We have been known to call on our patrons before to randomly show up and help us with an episode. So you never know. And uh, that's pretty much how Dalton ended up here was uh, he dared reached out to me on Telegram. I'm like, hey, you want to be a co-host? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, that's not what oh, we yeah, were sure. talking about. And I'm like, doesn't matter. You want to? Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, first it was, you want to do an interview? Yeah. You want to be a co-host? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it worked perfect. Nice. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We love our patrons and coffee supporters, so we just want to give a special shout-out for your support. We do a live show for patrons, so come join us. If you want to be a part of the show, you can join for just $1. That's darn near free. You can find a dollar in your couch cushions at least every month and join and get behind-the-scenes access to the show. That's right. We're now on coffee as a way to support the show. Coffee offers a nice monthly option that will allow you to have the same perks as Patreon. There'll be a link in the show notes and on our website to join coffee. The perks include things like access to live shows as well as unedited version of the shows and our most sincere gratitude. Today, you would have, instead of getting the hour and a half show that you're getting now, you would have gotten a almost five hour show. <laughs> one, two, I'm sorry, four-hour show. Almost a four-hour yeah. show. You'll have almost a four-hour show. So really, you're only getting 25% of the show if you're not a coffee supporter. For one buck, that is the... I mean, I, uh, I'm i in Wisconsin right now. I am driving all I'm over sorry. and taking my family to various places. We've gone through all sorts of different deals and coupons and this, that, and the other. No place have I seen a deal where $1 and you get three times the content. That's not a thing. It's a thing here. Sell it, Noah. Sell it. I love it. Well, please get back with us and let us know what you think or ask any burning questions via numerous methods, email, comments at destinationlinux.org or Telegram group, Discord, Twitter, Mastodon, and all the ways that you can find us on our website. And remember to send us a video this time as well. Send us a link to a video and we might include it in the show and you might get some free swag if you put your address in that email along with that link to your video. So please keep the comments and questions coming. We love to read them and hear of ways we might be able to improve the show and get awesome, valuable tips and tricks and software suggestions and all of the great things you all send into us. Yep. And the fun doesn't stop here. We actually have our own content on our own channels. If you'd like to check it out, you can go to Ryan's content on youtube.com slash dosgeek, where you'll fill your brains with a hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb's content as well on youtube.com slash Boss. You can check out my content at tuxdigital.com, where I do in-depth weekly Linux news podcasts called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content. You can check out Noah's content at asknoahshow.com, where he does a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. or on, on at 6 p.m. Uh, Tuesdays uh, at 6 p.m. Central specifically. Uh, and join him, and he'll answer your questions on Linux, uh, tech, business, all kinds of stuff. You can check out uh, Dalton's, uh, where he's uh, doing on UB ports or ubports.com for Ubuntu Touch. You can go to Ubuntu Touch, Ubuntu-Touch.io as well for the like for the list of the devices and uh you can and you, you can find him on twitter and I've, i think i remember it universal superbox without the ease without the ease okay 
universal nice. super you... box. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's awesome. So also be sure to, to like that smash button and share the show on social media. So everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>